is Chichester Cinephile, the podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, this is the Chichester Cinephile podcast. With the cinema reopening, we have some films from the December programme to preview, and then there is a Christmas theme to the rest of the podcast. But don't worry, we're not going to go down a cosy chocolate box Christmas card route. We will be taking an alternative look at Christmas films to help you through a Tier 2 festive period, before discussing three others in the cine circle. Before Covid, a group of us used to meet up monthly in the Hornet Ale House in Chichester to discuss what we'd seen recently – In our podcast version this time, we will be discussing A Christmas Tale, Un Conte de Noël, from 2008, The Apartment, from 1960, and, of course, It's a Wonderful Life, from 1946. If you want to watch them before listening to our discussions, we recommend www.justwatch.com to find out where you can do that. Here's the team. Carol. Hello, everybody. Good to be back with you. Hi everybody, it's Patrick Cargood from the education team. And I'm Sandy and I'm just one of the regulars at the cinema. After this we will be previewing December at Chichester Cinema and Patrick will be going first. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Okay, so Australian horror movie Relic is the debut feature of writer-director Natalie Erica James, and it stars British actress Emily Mortimer as Kay, whose mother lives in a remote house in the woods and suffers from dementia. She goes missing, is subsequently found, but has no memory of what happened to her. Kay, unable to look after her herself, decides that she needs proper 24-hour care. Here's a clip. Now, you mentioned your mother has some cognitive impairment? Yeah, I, I don't really know. She forgets things. She's started wondering. Well, the staff here are on call 24-7. Think of it as independent living with the edges taken off. Just in here. This side of the building has ocean views. Handrails in every room. High toilet seat. Mobility aids, if your mother needs help getting in and out of bed. No, she's fine with that kind of stuff. She's fit, she's active, and not even sure she's ready for a place like this. Well, it's five-star living. Relic premiered at Sundance earlier this year and co-stars veteran Australian actress Robin Nevin and rising star Bella Heathcote. Okay, Carol. A Christmas gift from Bob. This is the sequel to A Street Cat Named Bob, the feel-good 2016 film based on the true story of homeless busker James Bowen and his handsome ginger Tom, Bob, a stray he'd nursed back to health. The inseparable duo have a pitch outside Angel Tube Station in North London, where Bowen sold the big issue. When a literary agent suggested he turn his story into a book, 
Bowen wrote a bestseller about recovering from heroin addiction and finding purpose looking after Bob. The sequel begins on Christmas Eve and after Bowen's literary success at a swanky publishing party, Luke Treadaway once again brings depth not found elsewhere in the film with his gentle, sensitive performance as Bowen, vulnerable and socially awkward, mistrustful after living on the streets. Here's a clip. We wish you a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. Oh, surprise! <laughs> Bloody hell. I used your spare key. Do you like it? I thought you could use some Christmas cheer. There's a lot of things I could use right now, like getting my gas and hot water back on. I haven't had a shower in three days. Thought there was a nasty niff in the air. Oh, good boy. None always did this in my family. Bits of wisdom, prayers, wishes for the new year. You write things you are thankful for in the old one and then you just hang them on the tree. Thank you for James's friendship. See, it's not so bad. Angels are all around us if we just know where to look. Seriously? You really don't like the holidays, do you, Ebenezer Grinch face? <sighs> I need to work out what's going to keep me and Bob going for the month. It's nice to look forward to a twisty thriller with, it seems, a completely new premise. That's what we have with The Translators, or Les Traducteurs, showing as part of the French Film Festival at the cinema. With the third book in a best-selling trilogy about to be published, a group of translators is locked away in the cellar of a chateau to work on the different language editions. However, the first ten pages are leaked and a ransom demanded to prevent the rest of the book being leaked. This tense mystery is directed by Régis Rosard, who co-wrote it with Romain Compagne and Daniel Presley. The publisher is played by Lambert Wilson and Sidsi Babic Knudsen from TV's Borgen is among the cast. Patrick's next. Southern trees bear strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root do you remember the first time she sang that song at Cafe Society? Sure. It's unforgettable. Every time she sang it was unforgettable. When she sang Strange Fruit, she never moved. All service stopped at the bar everywhere. Can you remember any time when anybody might have caused any commotion? Oh, yes. Right people walk out. These are white people. White people. One party after another. We come to your nightclub to be entertained. And we don't call this entertainment. That was the instantly recognisable voice of jazz singer Billie Holiday, the subject of James Erskine's new documentary, Billie, which takes as its starting point nearly 200 interviews with people who knew her, recorded in the 70s by high school teacher and part-time journalist Linda lipnack Cool. The recordings, supplemented with some amazing archive footage, construct what Erskine refers to as the many truths of Holiday's life, from childhood rape and prostitution to stardom, drug addiction, and death at 44. Hey there, baby, make up your mind, cause I've been waiting such a long, long time. Now, baby, I'll never, I've been so sad and blue. Now, baby, I've never, I've been so lonesome, too. 
Carol. De Gaulle. It's May 1940 and France is facing a disastrous military situation against the German army. Charles de Gaulle, newly appointed general, joins the government in Paris while Yvonne, his wife and their three children stay in the east of the country. Facing the defeatist attitude of Pétain, ready to negotiate with Hitler, de Gaulle has one purpose, to continue fighting. Alongside thousands of French families, Yvonne and the children are soon forced to flee the advancing German troops. Without contact from one another, the doubt arises. Will the de Gaulle family be sacrificed for the sake of France? An outstanding destiny that will change the course of World War II and French history stars Lambert Wilson in the title role. Two films for Lambert Wilson this month. Yes, It's a brave director who takes on a subject that's already been made into a classic. Hitchcock's 1940 version of the Daphne du Maurier novel Rebecca had Laurence Olivier as Max de Winter and Joan Fontaine as his new wife, finding it hard to follow in the footsteps of his first wife, Rebecca. This time, Ben Wheatley directs Army Hammer and Lily James, with a screenplay by Jane Goldman, who was responsible for Kick-Ass... The Woman in Black and the Kingsman films, with Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse. Wheatley's back catalogue includes Free Fire, High Rise and A Field in England. Here, the new Mrs de Winter explores her predecessor's room, where she is startled by the housekeeper, Mrs Danvers, a suitably icy Christian Scott Thomas. It is beautiful, isn't it? I keep it just the way it was. As if she'd just gone out for a while. You startled me. This was her favourite. I laid it out for her that night. Go on, hold it. Touch it. She wouldn't have a lady's maid, you know. I don't want anyone but you, Danny. Do you see how tall she was? Hmm. She could wear anything with a figure like hers. And now Patrick has a word or two from the education team. During lockdown, the education team have been planning enough events to keep us going for several years. After the cancellation of both the Sondheim in the movies and the Sam Mendes events because of the second lockdown, both of which we hope to reschedule in the new year, we finally have our first events for nine months scheduled. These are all for schools. We've been putting on these events free of charge for local schools for several years. And this month, they're all joint events with Richard Knowles at Chichester Festival Theatre. We'll be looking at Pinocchio in film, including clips from a range of Pinocchio adaptations, together with other films which have either used the Pinocchio character, such as Shrek, or have been inspired by Pinocchio, such as Steven Spielberg's AI, Artificial Intelligence. This ties in with the Festival Theatre's Christmas production of Pinocchio, and Richard will be giving the students some background on the play and showing them some clips from rehearsals, as well as involving them in some drama work. We look forward to welcoming students from three different local primary schools, Central, Jesse Young Husband and North Mundham. So look out for events for adults in the new year. Still to come is our cine circle, but after this is our Christmas present to you. What's up, Doc? 
I think it's fair to say that none of the three of us are big fans of the obvious when it comes to Christmas, but there are many good films which feature some aspect of the festive season. We're calling this feature Humbug, not the obvious Christmas films, and the rationale behind it is digging out some interesting films from the Christmas grotto that might not be on everyone's list. We have each picked a few to unwrap, but there will be no White Christmas, no Santa Claus the movie, no Jingle All the Way or Elf. Some worthy films we discussed just missed the cut. The version of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge, from 1951 with Alistair Sim. I am not in the habit of keeping Christmas, sir. Then why are you leaving so early? Because, sir, Christmas is a habit of keeping men from doing business. Can't it's the nature of things that ants toil and grasshoppers sing and play, Mr. Scrooge? An ant is what it is and a grasshopper is what it is and Christmas, sir, is a humbug. Good day. <laughs> Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be And Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 version. Even though it's not often easy to categorise films, we've loosely grouped this lot by style, and Carol is going to lead us off with a fantasy film. Do you believe in Santa Claus? On the eve of Christmas, in the award-winning Finnish film Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, a young boy sets out to discover the truth behind several strange goings-on in his small, isolated Finnish village in the far north. Why have all the reindeer been slaughtered? Who took all the hair dryers and radiators? And where have all the children gone to? Seal the chimney, lock the doors. This real Santa is in town. And he turns out to be a filthy, kid-killing, naked geezer trapped under tons of ice and is set free in an explosion sponsored by an evil multinational corporation. We found something else than just plain rocks and dirt. This mountain is like a giant ice box. For storing what? Drill deeper. Prepare the dynamite. You have grave to rob. The film takes you by the throat and urges you to forget everything you've ever been told about Santa Claus. The jolly old gent in red and white delivering goodies to children on Christmas Eve. But the company doesn't know that ancient Laplanders froze and buried the real Santa a millennium back. Young Pietri lives on a nearby reindeer branch with his dad and other men who harvest reindeer. Only Pietri twigs what's happening and enlists his father to help frustrate the newly awakened Santa with intriguing, resourceful fun. Rare Exports is full of wonderfully twisted visions from the creepy life-size dolls Santa's helpers leave behind when they snatch a kid to the giant warehouse door that resembles an advent calendar right down to the big 24. And it's hard not to like a film in which a little kid who carries around a protective stuffed animal suddenly stares down the grown-ups, cocks a gun and snarls. It's either me or Santa. I suggest Santa. This is a new holiday classic for moviegoers who always suspected that any old dude who sneaks into houses can't really be as jolly as his reputation. And an alternative to the annual onslaught of ho, ho, ho Christmas tales. Rare Exports is a parable about commercialization of Christmas. In its tone, acting, location work, music and mounting suspense, this is an exemplary horror film. 
But it would also be nice to know why there don't seem to be any women in the snowbound village. Did they go the same evil way? In a more comedic vein, Patrick is going to introduce a couple of films from many years ago. Two of the greatest of all Christmas film comedies each had their origins in Hungarian productions of the mid-30s. The main character in each is female and working in retail, and both rely for much of their humour on those mainstays of comedy, false assumptions and misunderstandings. That was, of course, Donald Duck, a wind-up toy version of whom has a key role in Bachelor Mother, directed by Garson Kanin in 1939, in which Ginger Rogers stars as Polly Parrish, hired for three weeks to work in the toy department of John B. Merlin and Son, a big New York department store. Polly sees a baby abandoned on the steps of a foundling home. Rescuing it, she is subsequently assumed to be its unmarried mother. The son of the store's owner, David Merlin, played by a young David Niven, offers to extend her employment if she admits that the baby is hers and takes it back. Desperate for work, Polly goes along with this. David is attracted to her and turns up at her apartment with a book containing the latest expert advice on bringing up baby. Now, wait a minute. How do you know you're doing that right? Doing what right? Feeding it. Well, there's nothing very scientific about this. You just put the food in the baby's mouth and it swallows it. From there on, he's on his own. Now, that's what you think. <laughs> we'll just look into that. Here we are. Uh... Feeding, feeding. Here we are. After the food is prepared, the mother will, A, get a spoon. Wonderful. How did he ever think of that? No, please, don't be so smart. Just do as he says. Get a spoon. Spoon. B. Take a spoonful of the food and place upon a piece of gauze. Piece of gauze? What for? Uh, please, just do as he says. Quite possible that a man with 20 years' experience might know what he's talking about. Piece of gauze. Next. Gently rub into the navel. What? Gently rub into the navel. Uh, well, that's ridiculous. Oh, it isn't. It's probably to get the child's stomach accustomed to the temperature of the food. I think it's very logical. It's all very well following expert advice, but you need to make sure the pages of the book are not stuck together, as Niven shortly discovers. Bachelor Mother may not be the greatest of all Christmas films, but it has a strong case for being the funniest. Rogers was never better than as the smart, streetwise New Yorker Polly, ever ready to puncture the balloon of male presumption and entitlement. While Niven gives a brilliant comic performance as the hedonist son of the boss, who learns to grow up under her tutelage. Like Bachelor Mother, Ernst Lubitsch's 1940 film, The Shop Around the Corner, uses a clockwork Christmas gift as a key plot element. This time, instead of Donald Duck, it is a cigarette box which plays Ochichernya, a Russian folk song. Bachelor Mother was based on a 1935 Hungarian film, Little Mother, 
The shop around the corner was adapted by Samson Raffelson from a 1937 Hungarian play and kept its Budapest setting. Miss Novak, played by Margaret Sullivan, and Mr Kralik, played by James Stewart, both work at a small leather goods store in the pre-Christmas period. They despise each other, but are both in love with someone they have never seen, a pen pal with whom they exchange passionate love letters. Finally, each arranges a meeting with their mysterious correspondent on the same evening, and, well, you can probably guess the rest. When they both arrive at the same restaurant, Stuart realises the truth, but Sullivan continues in blissful ignorance and implacable hostility to Stuart. There are many things you don't know about me, Miss Novak. As a matter of fact, there might be a lot we don't know about each other. You know, people seldom go to the trouble of scratching the surface of things to find the inner truth. Well, I really wouldn't care to scratch your surface, Mr. Crowley, because I know exactly what I'd find. Instead of a heart, a handbag. Instead of a soul, a suitcase. And instead of an intellect, a cigarette lighter. Which doesn't work. Well, that's very nicely put. Yes. Comparing my intellect with a cigarette lighter that doesn't work. Yeah, that's a very interesting mixture of poetry and meanness. Meanness? Let me Well, now, don't misunderstand me, Miss Novak. I'm only trying to pay you a compliment. Mr. Crowley, please, I told you I was expecting somebody. Look, if your party doesn't show up, would I... Uh, Don't worry about that. My party will show up, so you don't have to entertain me. Moving from wit to tragedy, then back to repartee and romance, this film scratches at the surface of its characters with the utmost delicacy and poignancy. Although a comedy with plenty of sharp lines delivered with relish by the leads, the nuanced performances of Sullivan and Stewart ensure that loneliness and desperation are constantly lurking behind the wisecracks. As well as Christmas films, both these films are also great romantic comedies, a maligned and underrated genre here seen at its very best. Each film also has a magnificent cast of character actors in support, in particular the respective store owners. Charles Coburn, the master of irascibility as Niven's father in Bachelor Mother, and Frank Morgan, the Wizard of Oz himself, in the shop around the corner, driven to anguished self-recrimination on realising he has made a terrible mistake. Seek them out. This is the Hollywood of 80 years ago at the top of its game. And now for something completely different, and I do mean that. The Berlin-based Vocal family wants to celebrate Christmas with Grandma, but there are surprises in Der Kleine Nazi. Grandma Vocal has revived the Nazi Christmas of her childhood, unexpectedly coming across a box she has forgotten about. Maybe this wouldn't be such a major problem if it wasn't for the Israeli guest that their young daughter has invited along without asking Grandma or her parents. The last thing the Volkers want is to be taken for Nazis. This black humour 13-minute comedy has won many awards and is a gem to relish. Those who recall the film shorts the cinema's film festival organised in past years to mirror feature films might naturally gravitate to Der Kleine Nazi. It's on YouTube. I've realised that my choices don't in any way avoid cliché, but that doesn't seem to matter. It's not necessarily cliché that's the problem, it's how you deal with it. The Family Stone, 2005, is a rom-com with elements of tragedy. 
And on the surface, it seems like a box-ticking exercise as a grown-up family all return for Christmas at the family home, with one of them bringing his new girlfriend to meet everyone. Within the family is a deaf and gay son with his partner. One daughter is pregnant and the other is single and cynical. The parents are slightly bohemian and open-minded, and the new girlfriend is an uptight corporate type, leading to classic fish-out-of-water tropes. And yet it is perhaps more than the sum of its parts, or I'm being unnecessarily charitable. I re-watched it for this feature, and I enjoyed it again. What can I say? It was written and directed by Thomas Bazooka, who wrote the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, and wrote and directed a new Kevin Costner film, Let Him Go, which is coming out soon. The starry ensemble cast includes Diane Keaton and Craig T. Nelson as the parents, Sarah Jessica Parker as the fish out of water, and Rachel McAdams and Luke Wilson among the children. In this clip, the new girlfriend is bailing out to stay at a local hotel, having summoned her sister, Claire Danes, for moral support. The father lays down some rules for the family. So, we are going to welcome Meredith back without judgment. We will welcome her and her sister Julie into our home with open arms. We will try to behave like a civilized family might. Right, Amy? Why do you keep singling me out? Well, imagine what she had to have felt in order for her to call her sister. She's staying. You gotta give her credit for that. Yeah, excuse me. I, I'd like to say something here, if I may. Forget it. And I know you gave her my mic. Let's just vote Ben off the island. Yeah. I'm ashamed of all of you. Oh, there's some news. Even you. He's gonna ask me for that ring, I know it. You can't marry her. Thank you. Where have you been? They don't even love each other. Now let's move on to what we can loosely describe as the drama section. Action in director-actor Claude Jutras' Mon Oncle Antoine, 1971, takes place over a period of 24 hours in a Quebec mining town called Asbestos in the 1940s. This is a film to treasure, not least because of the way it uses its locations. The slag heaps of the asbestos mines overshadow the town below, and there is a high-angle shot establishing how vast they are and how small the town is. Although the film begins earlier in the year, everything comes into focus beginning on the morning of Christmas Eve and closing on the dawn of Christmas Day. During that time, a young boy has had his life changed forever. Benoit is an adolescent in the care of his uncle Antoine, who runs the general store and doubles as the town's undertaker. When Benoit accompanies his uncle to pick up a body of a local boy who died on Christmas Eve, and they go by horse and carriage in a blizzard, he is faced with his own mortality and realizes that life is fleeting. This beloved Canadian film, in French with English subtitles, is rich in character, glowing with life in the midst of death. The central story opens with a funeral, the deceased having died of lung disease contracted in the mines. The funeral is a sad affair. The dead man's body is covered with a rented suit front. The flowers are all fake, and the undertaker takes back the rosary to be used again. 
Nostalgia is kept firmly under wraps in this extraordinary story of ordinary, real lives, with little vignettes, snapshots of residents who congregate at the general store on Christmas Eve to celebrate the store's decorations and to gossip. There is great warmth and affection in the community. Fascinated by the small details of every life and the impact of environment on individuals, Claude Jutras' boundless creative imagination is anchored in the everyday, where a kid grows up learning about friendship, sex, work and corruption. The film has twice been voted the greatest Canadian film ever in the Sight and Sound poll, which is conducted once each decade. The Toronto International Film Festival placed it first in the top 10 Canadian films of all time, three times. Recently, the town changed its name from Asbestos to Val des Sources. When I was about 13 years old, I was much affected by the film Oh, What a Lovely War, and one of the enduring images was of the 1914 Christmas truce. This remarkable event was dramatised in 2005 as Joyeux Noël, Happy Christmas. The real story is that troops on both sides of no man's land came to a mutual ceasefire and they fraternised, chatting, giving each other presents, playing football, etc. Good evening. Do you speak English? Yes, a little. Wonderful. Uh, We were talking about a, a ceasefire for Christmas Eve. What do you think? The outcome of this war won't be decided tonight. I don't think anyone would criticize us for laying down our rifles on Christmas Eve. Don't worry, it is just for tonight. The generals on both sides were not amused. The film embellishes the story, but it's good at highlighting the lunacy of war and the effect on the soldiers. Of the plot lines I assumed were included purely for dramatic purposes, the least likely actually turned out to have at least one foot rooted in fact. The Crown Prince Wilhelm persuaded a famous tenor from the Berlin Opera to sing for the troops, both sets as it turned out. Apparently this did happen, though not quite as depicted, and I doubt that his soprano girlfriend was also there as the film has it. Writer-director Christian Carillon was in charge, and it's a bit of a Euro pudding, as it's a French, Scottish, German, Belgian, Romanian co-production. The dialogue is in a mix of French, German and English, and the miming to the operatic voices is not perfect, but I found it ultimately to be a moving representation of an extraordinary event. It was nominated for several awards, Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars and Golden Globes in 2006, and Best Film Not in the English Language at the BAFTAs. After a Scottish padre working as a stretcher-bearer holds an impromptu mass, he talks to one of his officers. What did you put in your report to the HQ? Well, I wrote 24th of December 1914. No hostilities on the German side tonight. Well, that's the truth. Tonight... These men were drawn to that altar like it was a fire in the middle of winter. Even those who aren't devout came to warm themselves. Maybe just to be together. Maybe to forget about the war. Maybe. 
The war won't forget us. So, the films we've been talking about are Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale from 2010, Bachelor Mother, 1939, The Shop Around the Corner, 1940, Decliner Nazi, 2010, The Family Stone, 2005, Mon Oncle Antoine, 1971, and Joyeux Noël, 2005. And after this, it'll be time for the Cine Circle. What in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. <laughs> so now it's time for our mini cine circle. And the first film for discussion is to be introduced by Carol. A Christmas tale skates on thin ice across a crowded lake, such as its complexity of characters and situations. It stars Catherine Deneuve as a woman dying of cancer and considering a bone marrow transplant. Because she is almost weirdly resigned to her fate and doesn't seem to worry much, her serenity prevents the film from being a procession into Dirgeland. What it is instead is a strangely compelling collection of private moments among the members of a large family with a fraught history. Some of the moments are serious, some revealing, some funny. Catherine Deneuve plays Junon, a beautiful, stylish woman married to Abel, Jean-Paul Rossignon, who is absolutely superb, a wealthy older man who is the most caring of the family. Before the action begins, we hear how their lives have been coloured by illness and impossibly painful tragedy that has sowed the seeds of complex dysfunction in their grown-up children, particularly Henri, the always watchable Mathieu Amalric. This must be healed, however, with a Christmas family reunion, but there is an ulterior motive. She asks her children and grandchildren at the family Christmas gathering to see if they are eligible to become bone marrow donors. Arnaud Desplechin's films are headlong, ardent explorations of failure, misunderstanding and emotional warfare. The result in this case, A Christmas Tale, is a film that is almost indecently satisfying and at the same time elusive. And it could have easily been told in less time than a 155 minutes long film. So Patrick, what was it like for you? I loved this film. I'd heard a lot about it and it was just one of those films that I'd never got around to seeing. I'm extremely pleased to have remedied that omission. I just thought that the whole cast was wonderful, as Carol has just said. I was particularly interested in all the stylistic devices that De Plachin employs. Like, it's largely realistic, but he also has, like, early on a shadow puppet section, and he has characters breaking the fourth wall, addressing the camera. He uses iris shots, which is another favourite of Jacques Demy. And, and there's, like, a little ironic homage to Vertigo in an art gallery. But, I, I mean, they, they, you might think these would be distracting in a real realistic film but I just thought they were a very clever way of moving the story on in the surprising and interesting ways as Carol said what a terrific cast I mean there was not not a weak point in it I mean obviously Catherine Deneuve was amazing in, in the lead role but there were some other terrific supporting players Emmanuel Devaux the Fournier the girlfriend of Henri a very dark film and I would probably prefer not to spend Christmas with a family like this but <laughs> I'm crediting I didn't find it too long I don't know what about you Sandy was it too long for you well I know I'm notorious for thinking films are too long I didn't notice this was too long I didn't and I was really surprised when you said how long it was because I hadn't really taken that in yeah I really enjoyed it I thought it was a wonderful mixture of slapstick with pathos 
and also a deeper, more complex sort of humour. And like you, I spotted references, not necessarily specific references to other films, but to different styles of film, different ages of film, because there was uh, sort of almost a, a nod towards silent films. And then there was a shot which I thought was wonderfully out of some sort of um, Nouvelle Vague 1960s film. And the way it was put together, I just thought it, was, it, it sort of verged from the surreal to the very real. And I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I laughed. I was moved by it. The characters were very well drawn, very well played. I just loved it. Had you seen it before, Carol? No, I'd never seen it before. The only drawback that I could see about the film were the subtitles. Uh, They were ruthlessly Americanized. For example, one of the characters talks about kiddo. Well, I'm sorry, but c'est pas très français, ça. And honey for mon coeur. All sorts of things like, but your brother's a dick, you know, I'm sorry, but that <laughs> it just removes yourself from the actual French film. And all of a sudden you're in American territory. And I just found it so intrusive. So this is the, the kind of thing that I think could have been done far, far better. I'm sure it could have been done better. It didn't actually worry me because I was just being carried along by the story. Interestingly, yeah. the subject matter is rather similar to a film I mentioned earlier on, The Family Stone. But a completely different take on it and I think that's partly what we were trying to get to with the alternative Christmas things is that it doesn't have to be the obvious Patrick? It reminded me of a couple of older films, I thought you know, in some of the style and the the family conflicts it was a bit like Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, it reminded me a lot of Thomas Vinterberg's Festen which is one of my favourite dysfunctional family films, to be honest I think that is the masterpiece of dysfunctional family films, Festen, I think that is extraordinary, but interestingly I was watching Mark Commode's documentary about Christmas films and he talked a lot about this film and he pointed out a lot of very close comparisons with an old British film called The Holly and the Ivy from 1952 with Ralph Richardson and Celia Johnson and John Gregson terrific cast Margaret Layton so I actually found that I had this film and I dug it out and watched it and it is extraordinary how there are many common scenes that is an excellent film as well and is also available to stream I think although there are many familiar elements in Desplechins Christmas Tale it's not cliched at all and it articulates those elements in new and surprising ways and very very enjoyable film Carol did you feel that the humor was particularly french I found the whole thing wonderfully French. Yes, it's just a joy. I love the the sophistication, the complete and utter truth that they're not hiding behind Christmas and they will still remain their characters. They're not on the best behaviour. I thought the children added a great deal too, that they were absolutely delightful and they seemed completely unstarry children. They were very, very natural. I find that it's always a joy to see uh, Mathieu Almeric in anything and I think the very first film that I ever saw him in was The Diving Bell and The Butterfly and I think I've been totally attached to him ever since so whenever I see his name attached to any film I know I'm going to enjoy myself and in this one he's completely and utterly bonkers but um, (laughs) I, I loved him and and his girlfriend as well, who looked upon him as, with adoring eyes, but was still her own woman, despite him, 
who really could have influenced everyone around him. Just as an aside, I thought it was nice to see a French film that wasn't set in Paris or one of the obvious places, but in a town I even had to look up where it was, right in the east of France, almost across the Belgian border. It was a nice touch that it wasn't somewhere obvious. I thought it was the, it's right up in the north, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's near, Lille. near Lille. Yeah, uh, which is not a—I mean, apart from being on the uh, Eurostar—is not a place that you talk about an awful lot. And the next film is going to be introduced by Patrick. So, The Apartment, sixty years old this year, co-written and directed by Billy Wilder, was released at what was arguably the peak of his career, immediately following *Some Like It Hot*. It starred Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter, who at the start of the film is one of 31,259 employees working on the 19th floor of a New York office building for a huge New York insurance company. Working in the same building are elevator operator Fran Kublik, played by Shirley MacLaine, and personnel director Jeff Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray. Baxter has a thing for Fran, and in this clip, he chats to her on the way up to the 19th floor. What did you do to your hair? It was making me nervous, so I chopped it off. Big mistake, huh? No, I don't like it. You've got a lulu. Huh? Yeah, I bet I get too close. And I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Accident Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? <laughs> now, that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Like A Christmas Tale, set at Christmas, but with little time for cheesy Yuletide sentiment, Carol, did you enjoy revisiting the apartment? I hadn't seen it for such a long time, and I absolutely loved it all over again. Who could not fail to love Jack Lerman? He's just superb. And also Ray Walston. I forget what he was famous for, but he was in quite a lot of... He was in a series, wasn't he, of some kind. Was it My Favourite uh, Martian? Well, wasn't he? My Favourite Martian, that's mm. right. That's right, yeah. 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 He was in Kiss Me Stupid, wasn't he? That later Wilder film as well. The whole thing was just so, so witty. When Jack Lemmon character is in the lift with Shirley MacLaine, it really couldn't be pitched any better. It's just wonderful. And there's a man behind them while they're having all these witticisms, just pretending to read a paper. Now, if he's really reading a paper, I'll be very, very surprised. Um, because it's far too interesting what's happening in real life. I thought Shirley MacLaine was just quite superb in this, the, the perfect casting. The sort of kooky girl. It was just a joy. And who would not love to see Fred McMurray again? Uh, I'd forgotten about him totally. And then suddenly to see him again was just really, really lovely. Well, I'd like you, Carol, I hadn't seen it for, I don't know, 40 years or more even. I don't know. And I remember all I remember about it was being rather underwhelmed by it then. So I was pleased to see it again now. But I was completely underwhelmed by it again. I don't get it. I don't see why people think it's so brilliant. There are no sympathetic characters in it. I didn't find it very funny. And, I mean, even Jack Lemmon, who usually is so charming, I just found him irritating in this one. I know a lot of people say it's, you know, one of the great films, but I just don't get it. That's really interesting, yeah. Because I, I would say it is one of the great films. I mean, I, watching it again, I, I really felt as though it, it, it would definitely be in my top five films of all time. And I think it is Wilder's masterpiece as well. Oh, I think and, it is uh, least exciting. I, yeah, it's interesting. Isn't yeah. it? It's very interesting. You see, you see, I love Some Like It Hot, but I think this is even better. I think just going back to what Carol said about Jack Lemmon and linking with what you said, Sandy, he is in many respects 
quite a creepy character, but he's virtually stalking Fran, isn't he? He brazenly admits to checking out her personal and private details from the company records. But because it's Jack Lemmon, you kind of like forgive him and she forgives him as well. But the film is always teetering, I think, on the brink of being tasteless and grim and being very, very funny as well. Yeah. That's what I love about it, particularly as, we're, as our Christmas theme this, this episode is humbug. It's definitely not a kind of a sentimental Christmas film. No. I mean, he meets Father Christmas in a bar. Father Christmas is wasted and has to be escorted out. That's the kind of film it is. The, the other thing I would say is, I, I think, I don't know, if, did either of you see this TV series Mad Men? Uh, no, not um, much I of it. it. Unfortunately. No, no. I, I thought that was a masterpiece of recent years, TV masterpiece. And it had a big influence on Mad Men, which was like set at the same time and in an office, except it was a, an advertising agency rather than an insurance company. But the, the whole thing with the kind of predatory high status males, the, the women employees are all secretaries, telephone operators and elevator operators, the casual everyday sexual harassment. And I think Fred McMurray, who normally is so kind of engaging and charming he's absolute archetypal sleazeball isn't he in this he's gloatingly amoral and hypocritical i don't think it's aged well i thought everybody in it was pretty unpleasant and their attitudes were pretty unpleasant and what i just Fran? yeah well she was knowingly having an affair with a married man i mean i don't think that makes her um, a laudable character a sympathetic character they all gave it their all i i will say that i mean they, they all the actors but i just wanted some relief from all this horrible Everyone was behaving horribly. And I didn't find it funny. I think that's the main thing. There was one bit, there was one, I wish I could remember it now, but there was one line about two-thirds of the way through, and I thought, ah, oh, good line at last, because the rest of it was just all so mundane and... Um Oh, I just yeah. like all the suicide jokes in it, <laughs> which is you know, very, very black. But it has some, oh, yeah. I mean, Jack Lennon's description of um, how he'd attempted suicide years before and uh, ended up shooting himself in the leg by, by mistake. And then the joke with the champagne cork and so on, I just think is absolutely masterly. And, yeah. um, and I mean, in terms of lines, I mean, about, okay, how about... Shirley MacLaine's line as Fran, I was jinxed from the word go. The first time I was kissed was in the cemetery. I just think that's brilliant. And, uh, uh, and what's the other one? She says, why do people have to love people anyway? Which is such a typically wilder line. Yeah. Well, I'm in a great fan of Some Like It Hot. I love the front page. I haven't seen Sunset Boulevard in a long time. But I'm surprised that I don't like this more. But I just didn't. Yes. Oh, I'm surprised as well. Yeah. <laughs> But it is less popular than Some Like It Hot. I think it is very highly rated, but my, most people's favourite Wilder film, I think, is Some Like It Hot or Sunset yeah. Boulevard. I, I think this is his masterpiece. It was also terribly stagey. No yes, outside shots. Um... The set was brilliant. The guy, Alexandre Trauner, who's the, is another emigre art director, he designed that massive office space, you know, that seems to sort of disappear into infinity. And then also the hokey little apartment where Lemon lives as well, where Baxter lives. And I, I mean, he got he got the Academy Award. It did sweep the board, by the way. Well, I think I think Wilder was I think he's the only person to win three Oscars for the same film. He got it for best film as producer, best director, and best screenwriter. Carol, have I, you I, got I, any any defence of the film you'd like to make? Um, I think that I I enjoyed it because it was of of that era. And there's such a great glimmer of innocence from those times. And it was 
kind of light and frothy apart from the, the suicide stuff that Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon talk about. The staging I found really, the apartment I felt was just straight out of a theatre and it just didn't feel like an apartment somehow rather to me. But if he won all those awards, the, the designer, then what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, of, I often feel that. <laughs> <laughs> light and frothy, you saw that. I liked it like you. Light and frothy are not two words I would use. Which leaves us with the film that's hard to ignore at Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. You probably won't need reminding. It was directed in 1946 by Frank Capra, who wrote it with Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who both worked on The Thin Man, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and other things. The stars are James Stewart and Donna Reed as George and Mary Bailey and Lionel Barrymore as the loathsome Mr Potter, with Gloria Graham and Ward Bond too. A guardian angel comes to Earth to save George who is suicidal after his family business, building and loan, gets into trouble. I don't think spoilers are an issue here. After we see George's life, the angel shows him how he has affected people in his town and what life would have been like without him. In this clip, George tries to prevent a run on the building and loan during the Depression. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie, I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. No, but you're... You're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? I got $242 in here, and $242 isn't going to break anybody. Okay, Tom. All right. Here you are, you sign this, you get your money in 60 days. For 60 days? Well, now, that's what you agreed to when you bought your shares, Tom. Tom! Tom. Did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Potter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you've got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? Amazingly, the film wasn't a success when it was released, despite its feel-good credentials and coming just after the war. It's a Wonderful Life could have been a twee, overly sentimental mess. I wonder why it wasn't, and why it managed to survive so spectacularly. Well, for me, anyway. Carol, do you think it survived? I think it has more than survived. It's it's one of those films that you kind of sit in your sofa and just be so thankful that you can have an excuse to, to see it again. James Stewart is just superb in this role. He has a sense of doom and gloom about him, but also he always has this sense of earnestness, which is part and parcel of his acting chops, I guess. And to see Ward Bond out of context in a way, because we're so used to seeing him in um, cowboy films, that in westerns, and to see him in this kind of film, I don't know which came first, his westerns or this, but that was really quite funny. Gloria Graham is one of those characters who seems straight out of the 30s. She's kind of a kooky, funny blonde who just goes mad. But I think it's a holiday classic to define all holiday classics. It's just a joy to, to see again. And the soundtrack, just everything about it. So, Patrick, do you think it avoided being a sentimental mess? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do. I know some people do think it's a sentimental load of old tosh. But having said that, other people, there's, there's a really wide range of responses to it. If you, if you read online, some people say it's a terrifying kind of dark fable. I mean, every time I start watching it again, and like unlike you guys, I have seen The Apartment numerous times, and I've also seen this film numerous times over the years. And every time I start watching it, I wonder whether I will still be moved by it or whether it will be ridiculously corny. But having watched it again last week, I still thought it's amazing. I'm a big fan of Dickens, and I think it is a brilliant pastiche of Dickens. It's obviously not directly based on A Christmas Carol, but clearly it's it's strongly influenced by it. And the, the way the whole first part is very light, it's almost like a rom-com, and then it changes into a critique of predatory capitalism, and then you've got a, a midlife crisis, and this this poor guy, George Bailey, who feels trapped by the all the suffocating obligations he has in his life. And then the absolutely brilliant final act with the theft of the money and George bent on suicide and that nightmare vision of Pottersville and then the final scene around the Christmas tree. I, I just, I think it is, is extraordinary. It is a wonderful film. I must, I must admit, I got a lump in my throat quite early on this time and I've seen it, I don't know how many times. It's um, a sort of film that it takes me by surprise every time because I think if you said to me, there's a film and there's a guardian angel comes down to sort out the pro, I'd have gone, no, thank you. But somehow it works. Interesting what you said about Dickensian, Patrick. Now that you've said it, I think, gosh, you know, it's so true. The oh, sort of death and elation and depression and hope and despair and, you know, all of those things and, and great characterization too. So, yeah, I think that's a nice comparison. But I, I read somewhere that it only became a classic after it went out of copyright and could be shown right. freely, and then suddenly it took off, which is bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It is bizarre. It was a flop at the time, apparently. And I must admit, I think maybe like you, when I was young, when I, I first started watching old Hollywood films in my teens, I thought, oh, oh, do I really want to watch this? This looks incredibly corny. And whereas I first saw The Apartment when I was about 15, I think I didn't watch this until I was in my 20s. And then I thought, wow, this is an extraordinary film. I was going to say, I also think it raises issues of contemporary relevance and I think we can all sympathise with George's desperation to get away and do exciting things. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, he, and he's never successful do. at that. No, that's true. And it does also end with everyone in tears. Very good. <laughs> I apologise for that. Do you want me to leave now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Mother of mercy. That's it for this year. We'll be back in the new year. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can contact us via walter at chichestercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, it's goodbye from Carol. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for listening. And see you next year, a more cheerful year in store for us all, I feel. And Patrick. Goodbye, everybody, and I hope you have a less stressful Christmas than most of the characters in the films we've been watching. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me, Sandy. Goodbye. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen.
Find us at chichestercinema.org.